You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. And at the time that we're recording this episode, we are just about three weeks out from the longest government shutdown in U.S. history. It lasted for a little over a month. And during that month, when I told people I lived in D.C., I got people asking me concernedly and sincerely, what is it like in that town right now? And so to share a little bit about what life was like for Christians living in D.C. during the government shutdown, I want to welcome Pastor Matt Watson. Matt is the pastor and church planter of Christ City Church here in uh, D.C. on Capitol Hill. It's a church plant of the District Church, where he was a pastor before striking out to help start Christ City. He's also a husband of 18 years, a father of three. And he's here today to share a little bit more about how the government shutdown affected his congregation and uh, what they learned about community and discipleship through this experience. Uh, Matt, thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm honored uh, to be on the show with you. Tell me a little bit about your church, your congregation. It's on Capitol Hill in D.C., so I think the first thing most people would think is it's mostly or entirely people who work in politics and government. Is that correct? It's not entirely correct. I mean, we have um, a number of folks that obviously live in D.C. and uh, vocationally work on Capitol Hill or with some international NGO or some agency uh, that is based here in D.C., though, though not everyone. And we have local school teachers. We have folks that work at um, local citywide nonprofit organizations, folks that are entrepreneurs and business people. We do have a significant number of folks, though, that do work on Capitol Hill and that are engaged in, in uh, the, the political world of things. How many of them were affected by the government shutdown then? Yeah, I think that it was about by the time we sort of added everyone up that was either directly or in some way indirectly affected by the government shutdown. Uh, it was uh, in the neighborhood of about a quarter of our congregation or a quarter of the people that, um, that worship with us on Sunday. So I know there are other churches in the, uh, in the Capitol Hill area that, that have a higher percentage. Um, but that was that was that sent significant tremors um, even through our congregation um, and through the different small groups that folks are in. You said that there are other churches in the district and on the in Capitol Hill that have a higher percentage. Um, do you know of any churches that would have crested like fifty or seventy five percent, or are most of the churches that you're aware of on Capitol Hill uh, kind of a mix of people who kind of lead local careers versus national careers? I would say that most of the uh, churches in, uh, on Capitol Hill, are that they are a mix. Um, there's not, there's not going to be a, I don't know of a congregation that is entirely made up of, of folks that are just um, people that work on Capitol Hill or in the administration. I, I can't think of one. I think most of them are some mixture of people that, um, have jobs that are just more local or regional, as well as others that, again, likewise, are, are working in uh, political vocations. How does that line up with what you expected when you uh, started pastoring in D.C.? Were you Did you come here expecting that you were going to be primarily pastoring to 
people in politics and government? Yeah, I think that, um, I think as a church planter, whenever you come into a city that has a certain identity in a certain um, industry, that you, that you come in anticipating that folks within your congregation will be overwhelmingly affected by whatever that industry is. So if I were planting in Detroit or in somewhere in Michigan, I would, I would just assume that my congregation, not exclusively, but certainly would be made up of, of engineers and automakers and financiers that are some way, shape, or form uh, related to the auto industry. I think when you come into uh, Washington, D.C., or even the, the greater D.C. area, Northern Virginia or Maryland, that you come in knowing that your, uh, that your congregation either by vocation or association, is going to be affected by, by the industry of the day and the, and, or of the place. And the industry of our place is, is politics in many ways. And so there was a sense where we're coming in, I knew that, um, I knew the lay of the land. Having said that, though, I, I really have been um, surprised and pleasantly surprised by the different vocations and passions that people within my congregation have. So one example is um, our congregation is actually made up of, of quite a number of people who e either by vocation or by hobby or by passion um, intersect um, the arts and, and creative arts world. And so we will have folks that are immigration attorneys by day, but then they're opera singers by night, or they're journalists by day, but they're short story writers and poets by night. They um, are legal uh, paralegals by day, but they um, host uh, storytelling events by night because they're they have some heart that intersects creativity, but their day jobs and their and their vocations, which they're passionate about as well, intersect something in the political world. And so that's that that diversity is 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 broader than I had anticipated coming in, and I've really really appreciated that. How has your understanding of politics and government changed by pastoring to a congregation that? Has you know twenty five percent of them work in politics or government? I, I think you know how has it changed? One, um, I think one of the the national perceptions um, of how politics in DC works is that you know it's it's you know you just see the contention of of language that happens nationally around politics, and just uh, there's an assumption that. These are like two warring rival gangs, and so like when they see each other, you know, on the streets of Capitol Hill, they're just like bludgeoning each other with with their words or or what have you. And um, that's not. There are certainly differences or ideological differences, um, but the but at the end of it, they're still um, they're still people. And they are still, um, and they're not like a different, you know, Republicans are in a different category of human than, than Democrats. I mean, they're still bound in the same image of God. They still have the same aches and desires and hopes and uh, appreciations and, you know, that, that there's still a, a human level to it. And so I, I think if anything, one of the surprises is, is when I tell folks that we have people that, that are on both sides of the aisle that are in small groups together that pray for one another. They certainly can have sharp disagreements politically, but they, um, but they still care deeply about each other and about their faith and, and how, that, uh, how they're able to stir up each other's affections for Christ. Like you, like you hope that that's the case, but then to actually see that that's the case is refreshing and, and meaningful. 
And for me, it stirs up, it stirs up a measure of hope, particularly in, in, in quite divisive times. It is, it is challenging, and, and there are divisive times, and we certainly see those fractions um, in the city, and, we see, and we've seen them within the church too. But, um, but I think in terms of surprise, it is that surprise that, that, that the division, that isolation, that there's still, there's still collegiality, there's still um, common cause, there is still Christian care uh, for each other that is, that is displayed. Uh, and I think when folks from outside of DC come and they see that, or even when I tell them, they're like, "It's impossible," and and that belief that it's impossible because they haven't quite seen it in their own context, and many times it's because their contexts are politically homogenous. But um, but I'm hopeful for that, and I think that that if anything, in terms of the the political divisions that we see, um, it seems like the kind of thing that the Lord would do that in the place that the world views as the politically divisive capital of the country, that, it, that it's the church that displays um, what it means, what unity looks like. Um, not, not, not homogenization, but a, but a harmony even in the midst of, 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 uh, of diversity. So, so you said about a quarter of your congregation was directly or indirectly affected by the shutdown. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you mean by directly or indirectly? What are some examples of specific ways the shutdown affected some of your congregants' day-to-day lives. Yeah, so directly is um, the shutdown, they were a classification of employee, either non-essential or a contract employee with, with the federal government, and that they were not allowed to go to work. Um, they weren't paid. They um, uh, just stayed at home. Um, it was uh, experientially being unemployed. Um, we had other folks that were essential employees, um, and so they were. Uh, they went to work. Um, they had something to do each each day. They went back to their offices. Um, some of them were paid. Some of them weren't. And so it was. It was different degrees of what the shutdown did to them. So obviously, for those that weren't able to go to work or weren't being paid, uh, there were tremendous financial hardships there. For others, if they were still going to work, they were essential employees. They were they were still getting a paycheck. There was significant effects on morale of the office. Um, there was significant effects on their workloads, uh, and that's not even to speak of um, spouses or partners or uh, family members that were affected by um, uh, by one family members uh, being furloughed in one form or another. And so, what's the difference between a furlough and a vacation for your congregants well for many of them is they didn't they, they weren't receiving a paycheck they they didn't get they weren't paid for that those 35 days um and some of them weren't aren't ever going to get paid for that um there were uh, limitations on what they could do to earn money um outside of that they couldn't take on another job because they didn't know when they were going to be called back to uh to work mm-hmm. um and so each and every day they were just uh, sitting around wondering, is today going to be the day where, the, where this government shutdown will end? Um, and they can't go out and get a part-time job or anything because the, the, any prospective employer would say, well, you, you may just work for a few hours and then you're, you're going to be gone. I, I'm not going um, to take a risk on that. I mean, it was a forced unemployment um, with restrictions on what you can and can't do to, uh, to provide for your family. And you mentioned that that affected morale around the office for the folks who were considered essential employees and had to continue reporting for duty. Um, but how did it affect morale in the day-to-day life of your congregants who 
weren't essential, who were furloughed, who were temporarily laid off? Oh, it was um, the the words that that I heard from um, folks in our church that were furloughed is just um, words like depression, um, anxious, um, maddening. Um, it was, you know, first couple of days is fine, but you stretch into a month, 35 days, bills begin to pile up. And uh, so it's just all of those, those emotions and feelings that can come with, with uncertainty. I, I mean, I, I remember Julie telling me, you know, I've, I, I, there's only so many times I can clean my house. Like I can't, it's not like I can take a vacation or a trip or, or anything like that because I have to pinch my pennies. It's not, it's not as though we're all sitting on wads of cash that's going to sustain us forever. So we, every move is, is being really intentional and being really thrifty. And that, that weighs, that weighs on, on folks really heavily, especially when it's unexpected. And uh, furthermore, when you feel as though uh, the feeling of, that you're a pawn of folks that, uh, of the powerful. And that was their, just their experience of it. Um, politics aside, of just feeling like, man, I don't have control over, over my future and over what's happening here, and just um, so emotionally, it was it was, um, disheartening for so many folks. Um, and how did you see your congregants helping one another through that? Like, what did your congregation realize? You you are actually doing pretty well as a community because of uh, the way you saw yourselves reacting to the shutdown. Yeah, well, I'd, I, <laughs> I'm not sure that, that that we that we did it well. I mean, this is just it was lessons learned. The first couple of weeks, you just didn't know how long it was going to go, um, and so uh, honestly, there was there was just a um, an organic way that those workers themselves um, connected with each other, encouraged one another, um, hosted. Uh, lunches and meals um, together. There were uh, text message threads and email threads that they would send around to one another. And so they formed in, in many ways an, uh, just a, a very organic support group for each other um, as, uh, during those first couple of weeks. As it stretched on, then uh, our, our church uh, is structured around small groups. And as it drug on, then small groups began to, small group leaders especially began to to make note of the prayer requests, they began to make note of just the things that um, that people were saying in their small groups as as to how the the furlough has has been affecting them financially and emotionally and relationally and spiritually, and so they began to to take um, still organic but a bit more organized steps towards how can we as a small group support uh, these folks? Um, how can we set up um, address some of the financial um, burdens that some of our small groups are small group members are facing, so they would take up money, but wanted to do it in a way that was really sensitive and dignifying. Um, other small groups began to host um, dinners, or individuals would would host dinners, and the small group would come. Uh, and that those that were furloughed, you know, it was with the with the intention of let's make sure that these folks that are that are being furloughed that they that, that they know that they're seen, that they are welcomed, and as much as we can strip any sort of stigma or uh, embarrassment that they may feel about the spot that they're in. One story uh, that um, one of the furloughed workers in our church told me is when what was really meaningful is not just having um, dinner with 
uh, their small group, but that the host, they didn't just provide dinner, but they made sure that there was enough that they could um, have leftovers. And so that was, it was that extra step of not just feed me today, but also I want, I want to make sure that you got something for tomorrow and the next day too. And I think that that was, if there's a win or if there's something that we um, have noticed, it's that, um, yes, take a first step, but also think about the second and third steps of, of what it means to really genuinely care for each other, to display hospitality, to, to, to suffer together uh, through something. And that was, um, that was something for me that I can't say we organized that or thought strategically about that, but it was something that just the Spirit stirred up and in, in the lives of, of those in our church that said, look, we've got to care for her. Let's just make sure that we're walking really closely with, with those that are, that are in a rough patch right here. So those, those are just a few things. I mean, it's nothing, um, you know, goodness, it, giving a meal or assisting financially is not, is not rocket science, but what are those tender ways that we can take an additional step, not just a meal for today, but let's make sure that they've got enough to take home for tomorrow. Um, how, uh, so anyway, those, those were a few things. I mean, there's others too that we can get into in a, in a moment, but, um, but tangibly, um, just addressing the real, the real needs on the ground that, that folks are facing. Layoffs happen. People do lose their job or get fired or companies collapse every day. Um, it's not often that a quarter of a congregation is laid off all at once or furloughed all at once. What other, um, pieces of advice would you offer to pastors who are pastoring um, to congregations that might be experiencing layoffs or job loss or job insecurity? Or what are even some things you've realized your congregation needs to get better at? Yeah, this was actually a question that, that we asked those that had been furloughed, is um, what, are, what are helpful ways for us to, as a church, uh, and as church leadership, what are helpful ways for us to know how to talk with you about this? Um, what what would you want us to know? Um, and then what what would you rather we we not do? And a few things came up. One is um, the the there are certain questions that when someone is in 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 our case a furloughed situation, but I also think that it applies to issues of unemployment as well. Is, is some of the questions that we ask, so for example, um, what would you do today, can be a very just innocuous question, but for someone that, um, that is out of work or that is unemployed for one reason or another, that question is, is the exact wrong question. It's the very one that stirs up a, a great deal of, of anxiety. And so they were, the furloughed workers were helpful in sort of giving us feedback to say, don't, you know, don't ask this, but you can ask us this. Um, and the, you can't ask us this. It was questions that are just, that are more, actually more personal and, and more ripe for genuine conversation among people that have a shared faith. So it's just that very question of how are you doing? How are you doing spiritually? How are you doing emotionally? Um, even asking questions of, of, of what do you need, but, but doing it in a way that, um, that triggers dignity, not um, not triggers a sense of of selflessness um, on the part of the of the hearer. They um, they also pointed us to um, ways that we could just talk about money. Um, I think that I think so often um, in many of our congregational contexts, 
we just we have some aversion uh, to to talking about our, our financial situation. Some of it's bound up in shame. Some of it's bound up in individualism and and other things. But to be able to say um, financially, do you have what you need, or or do you have needs that maybe we as a community uh, ought to be aware of, either so that we can pray for you or support you, or maybe there's um, uh, ways that we uh, can give towards that. Um, and you want to be tender and sensitive with that and probably not have, you know, all 15 people in your small group asking this person individually all 15 times, like about their financial situation, but to, but to have equip a small group leader to be able to step towards them and say, how are you doing financially? We, we know it's been a, a long road here. You doing okay? How much longer can you do okay? Any things that you'd want us to know or, or be alerted to? So that, that, that freedom of both giving us as church leaders language uh, of how to ask those questions, um, giving us tram lines uh, of how to ask those and who should ask those uh, was really super helpful for us. Um, the, um, the other thing that they said that was really um, helpful is just the gathering of other people that were in similar situations. So uh, meeting together with other furloughed workers was just was just a, a balm for them. I mean, it was just a, a comfort for them. I think that something similar is uh, like I want to file that away for as we have other people that experience um, seasons of of prolonged unemployment um, to know that there's actually comfort in those spaces to go, man, we, we're in a similar boat. We're not going to be here forever, but we're here now. And to have, to have company uh, in the, in the seasons of chaos that, that those places can feel like. So those were, those were things that were really informative and instructive that I want to hang on to. Um, God forbid another furlough happened, but we will have people that experience um, seasons of unemployment. And so to know how to talk about that, how to care for them, how to equip our small group leaders to care for them. And then um, also to, to create, if in the event that there is a next time, how do we create in a more organized way, gathering points for people that are in those similar situations? Um, those are all things that, that we want to take forward uh, into, into whatever season is up ahead. I've also gone through periods of unemployment. And one of the like, hardest parts of it for me, aside from the economic instability, was the social isolation of it. Yeah. Feeling cut off from activity and life and legitimate participation in the world around me. Yeah. Um, isolation. Once that starts, it self-perpetuates. And I don't know how I would have emerged from it without um, really proactive uh, fellowship from people in my church, from uh, folks who were either friends or folks who were not necessarily friends but other small group members who saw themselves as my brother and sister and recognized I was in a situation that could be very destabilizing and made it a joyful responsibility to reach out to me and keep me feeling connected to others during a time when that was hard. Yeah. Yeah, that's that that was a that was a common um experience and and a common ache from uh, goodness um i think every furloughed worker that i that i talked about they talked about that that isolation um of of being cut off of just the aimless ways that one can pinball around their own house or apartment and just go goodness gracious what 
you know, what am I going to do? Um, how am I going to constructively fill my time here? Um, any of the social events that may happen that, that would center around, let's go grab dinner or some drinks afterwards, just a feeling of like, I don't think I can do that because I, you know, any money that I have, I just got to hang on to it. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to be a burden, the feelings of, I don't want to be a burden on somebody and just all of those narratives that I think are, have their origins in the enemy, um, not in the truthfulness of, of, uh, who we are in Christ and who we are in the body of Christ. That, but but they're legitimate. They're 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 real. There's there's things that are heard, and I think the thing that you said of of people proactively stepping towards you when you were in that season, I think that's spot on. Um, that that there is, um, we can't just put it on those that were furloughed or the, or even those that are that are unemployed. Hey, that thing that we often say, if you need something, let me know. That 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 puts so much of the burden on the person that that has the that that is in a spot that does have a need. I think there is a responsibility on us to to step towards them and go. What? Um, let me take a few stabs at what I could imagine you might needing. You might need a friend. You might need somebody to say, "Hey, I, I know you don't know what the day's going to hold for you today, but let's let's still grab coffee early in the morning, or let's um, you know drinks on me tonight." But but it is on us to step uh, towards those that are in that are that are in rougher patches. Um, and I know it's well-meaning and well-intentioned when we say, hey, if you need something, let me know. Like that's, and that's a reasonable thing to say. You don't say, you know, I'm not saying to not say that, but also to back it up with, with some sort of action because they, it, um, it may be that, that they need us to, to step towards them um, in a more intentioned way, as you, as you said. That, that, was, that, was, uh, that was some feedback that we got. Like loaning your Netflix password is great, but Doctor Who is not a reason to take a shower and sometimes it's nice to have a reason to take a shower <laughs> that's right that's uh, right i want to just seize on one more thing you brought up um you had mentioned people not wanting to be a burden um that makes me think that one of the best things we might be able to do for people who are laid off or unemployed or furloughed or experiencing seasons of or even persistent uh, economic insecurity is uh, make treating one another to things more common. Make a habit of doing that when it's not necessary. If we make that kind of a normal part of our Christian community, then it's not going to be as difficult for people to receive it when they don't want to admit they need it. Right. Yeah. Cult- cultivating a culture, not just of hospitality, but generosity towards one another is um, is is spot on, and there's still a lot of areas of growth and maturity that Christ City um, aches for and is stepping towards. But but one of the things that just by God's grace and goodness that we have cultivated um, to a degree a, a culture of 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 generosity and hospitality, and so that's why those those organic gathering points were able to develop uh, was. was because there were existing relationships and existing patterns and rhythms of hospitality and care. Um, and with small groups, when it, when it emerged in the small group context, that's how those organic um, responses were able to, um, to manifest because there was a, a rhythm, there was a, a culture and environment that had, that had allowed that um, permission had already been given for those things to, to occur. Um, where we do need to grow is in that, is extending that even beyond and, and to say, okay, what, um, what are ways that we can support more thoroughgoing in a, in a more thoroughgoing way financially 
either in organic ways or organized ways, like through through the benevolence of, of, of the church, how you cultivate hospitality and how you cultivate generosity in non-crisis times um, is really the thing that's going to, to help um, the church weather and, 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 and folks that, that are part of your church weather these, these seasons and situations in life. If you, if you just do it just in the midst of crises, it can feel quite transactional. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, but if a, a, a church or community of faith that is stepping into it and that has rhythms of, of doing this and has fostered a culture of that, then, then when these flashpoints show up, then, then you're just better equipped to be able to, um, to step into them. And those steps feel quite natural because it's a muscle that you've exercised already. There is, on that note, an event I want to flag for you all. Um, it is on Tuesday, February 19th. The Center for Christian Civics is hosting this in partnership with CRU, formerly known as Campus Crusade, and with Restoration City Church. It's called For the Good of the City. And it's a one-night, two-hour conference on putting God's vision for mercy and justice into practice in your church and in your city. We're going to cover... Uh, Things that you can do practically in your relationships, in your church and small group, to help foster that kind of culture of mercy and generosity that Matt was just talking about a moment ago. And that portion of the evening, at least part of it, is actually going to be also broadcast on Facebook Live on the Center for Christian Civics Facebook page. The rest of the night is going to be dedicated to sharing stories from other faith-based nonprofits in D.C. that are expressing mercy and justice in practical ways. So we're going to hear from organizations like the International Justice Mission, which is a faith-based Christian organization that works to end human trafficking. We're going to hear from the DC Dream Center, from a range of Christian groups addressing mercy and justice issues on the local, national, and international level, and practical things you can do in your own church to make it uh, a more fertile ground for growing a culture of mercy and justice. So that's February 19th. That's this coming Tuesday here in Washington, D.C. You can register at our website, christiancivics.org. Just go to the page for upcoming events. Um, If you're in the D.C. area, we'd love for you to join us there. If you're not, follow us on Facebook Live uh, for a portion of the content. Now, um, before we close in prayer, Matt, how has this experience changed your prayer life? Yeah, I think it's, it's changed uh, and influenced the things that I'm praying for. Um, the, uh, I don't think that I would have known to pray for the morale of the Department of Transportation um, if I didn't have friendships, if I didn't have folks in my small group that were affected by that. And so my prayers have become quite specific. Like, you know, you pray for the government, you pray for um, leaders. Um, and all of that, but also I, I found myself praying more for just the everyday servants that are in and uh, places of government and in positions that are trying to contribute to the well-being of uh, of our country. And so the specificity of my prayers has really ramped up, and, and just because of the relationships that that I have with people that are in different departments at at Treasury or other places where uh, where they're having to face these things straightway. So praying. For those that I know that are in that are in leadership and management positions, folks that I know that are at the Smithsonian that are affected by this, folks that I know that are at uh, the Peace Corps that are affected by this, so I'm praying with a with a measure of specificity about our government that I just hadn't before, and it's because of the relationships of, of folks saying this is what you can pray for me and this is what you can pray for um, those that are in my office. 
So that's what that's what I'm praying for these days. Um, particularly as we as we face another another deadline uh, around um, around a, another potential shutdown and furlough. So, would you be willing to lead our listeners in prayer to end the episode? I'll, I'd, I'd be happy to pray for us. Thank you very much. Uh, God, you are our provider. We have different employers, uh, but at the end of the day, you are our ultimate provider. And so, God, we do lift up uh, those those workers that we that we know, those that we don't know, that have been affected by uh, by our government's shutdown last month. God, I pray that as they have stepped in back into their offices, some of them stepping back into for the first time since uh, before the Christmas break. Lord, it's uh, we pray your care over them. Um, we pray your care over their over their emotions and over their passions. God, we pray against cynicism. We pray against um, disillusionment, God, and pray that uh, that you would instill them in, in, in its place, that you would put hope, that you would put a, a hope that's that's certainly rooted in you, but is also sober-minded. God, I pray over the managers and supervisors and leaders of the different um, departments, God, that they would lead well, that they would create spaces to, um, to welcome back and to comfort those that they are given charge over. God, I pray that um, that they would be leaders that would um, be tender in walking their departments um, forward. God, I pray for churches that we would know how to um, how to care um, thoughtfully, sensitively, with dignity, to care for folks that um, that have just come out of a season of uh, of vocational and economic instability. And God, we know that there are some that have come out of this, and uh, that they that this experience has um, dislodged them in a way where they're beginning to look for other things. God, I pray that you would guide them uh, to the work and to the offices that you have in store for them. And God, I pray that through it all, like even through the midst of the struggle and the um, challenges, that um, that we would continue to remember that you are that you are still in control that you're still providential, that you still uh, care for and um, give good gifts to your children. And God, I pray that, um, that we as churches will continue to be um, safe havens and places of care and nurture for folks that, that are experiencing economic instability and vocational instability, and that we can point them to the one that never changes. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you very much, Matt, for uh, thank you, being brother. with us. Uh, I'm grateful. Grateful, man. Proud of your work. Thank you. And thank you uh, all for listening, for praying along. Um, and also thank you for your patience. I'm pretty sure it's podcast best practice to you um, as soon as you have the biggest guest you've ever had on to take about two and a half months to make your next episode. I'm pretty sure that's normal. <laughs> um, but on the off chance that it's not, I appreciate you all. Uh, sticking around. And if this is your first time listening and you don't know what I'm talking about, go back into our archives. Uh, I think the last episode we released was uh, with Joshua Harris talking about uh, what it's like to admit you're wrong in public. Uh, Please follow us on Facebook if you're not in the D.C. area to hear a portion of next week's conference on mercy and justice. And visit our website, christiancivics.org to learn more about our work empowering the church to be lamps on stands across the political spectrum.